brethren, I made it. I'm 85 years old now. So God had a lot of you praying for me and others. And I'm glad that God gave me 85 years of life. And uh, I may not live until 90 or 110, so don't ever feel sorry. I've already lived longer than most of you here, as you know, so I'm very grateful for that. But anyway, it's good to be here with you and continue to serve as long as I can. I do thank God and thank all of you that I'm still able to be in reasonable health for 85 years of age because most of my friends I've ever talked to, they're, or they're either about to die or in a wheelchair or nursing home that are that age. So it's good to be here and still try to carry on the work of God. But brethren, the world, as most of you know, is an absolute chaos today. And we have people around the world that are being killed uh, right and left. And we have from the front page of the Wall Street Journal today, I guess the Wall Street Journal, here's the Saturday, Sunday edition here. Is that outside? It's me, I guess. Okay. I wonder if there's another storm outside. Anyway, anyways, court rules gays have right to marry. And, of course, that's a terrible thing. We're very sorry for that. But our nation is going downhill very, very fast, and we know that. So the sooner it hits bottom, so to speak, why, the sooner Christ will come. So we can be glad for that part. This Justice Kennedy, who's always very liberal, he said they ask for equal dignity. They want dignity, these people. They're into sexual perversion. The Constitution grants them that right. But right next door, they have the quote here at the front page of the journal from the Chief Justice Roberts. Do not celebrate the Constitution. It had nothing. He said nothing to do with it. That's interesting. And they had to reason around and have this kind of strange decision. And even four out of the five justices voted against it. It was a very narrow decision. And most of the older men who were on the court would not have, did not vote for that, voted against it, including the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Justice Roberts. Yet things are happening. Here's another quote just below that on the front page. Terrorists killed dozens on three continents. And it tells about what's happening in Tunisia. A man with a Kalashnikov hidden in a, in a parasol shot dead 37 tourists at a beach resort. 37 killed all of a sudden over there just the other day. In Kuwait, an Islamic State suicide bomber killed 27. So you have 37 and 27. Start adding it up, and then a, a, a number of Somalians were killed by this terrorist over there. And then in France, a suspect decapitated his boss at a U.S.-owned industrial gas plant. So he cut his boss's head off. These things are happening more and more frequently around the world, often inspired by Islam, which they try to say they're the religion of peace. What kind of peace is that? What kind of peace is that? They slaughter each other. They slaughter Americans, Europeans, everybody. But God is permitting this to happen. And I just want to tell you, brethren, I think, you know, I've been around for a while. I've been in the church now 65 and a half years, and I've seen things come and go. And I've been watching prophecy, and I'm the one that wrote the letter showing Mr. Armstrong that agreed that, and that we would probably have more time beyond 1972 I talked him into letting me send that letter out three years ahead of time. But I feel that with this same-sex marriage decision 
and all these other things that are slowly coming together, we don't have near that much time now. We're getting very close. And I believe in the next several months and certainly the next few years, you're going to see things speed up more than ever. And we're going to have terrible drought, famine, disease epidemics, other things like that, persecution such as we've never had before. And God's people are going to have to have faith to go through this. And I hope all of you realize that. These things are certainly speeding up in a terrible way. But God is aware of these things, of these terrible things in our society. Our perversion now taking over much of our society. And of course, he's going to soon act. He is going to intervene and bring down America and the United Kingdom and the descendants of Joseph. He's given us awesome blessings, and we should be very thankful for those blessings, but he's going to begin to take them away faster and faster. And so we're going to have weather upsets, and we're going to have disease epidemics, and people will need, brethren, more than ever to be delivered by God from terrible things that are happening and from disease epidemics. We're not against doctors. Doctors can do certain things. Doctors can't heal anything. Most doctors admit that they can't heal anything. They can give you a drug or something to alleviate the symptoms of what you have, but it doesn't just take it away like God can. They can cut out part of your body if you have cancer. They can cut off your arm and you don't have any arm anymore, but they can't heal in that sense. Pretty soon, if there are genuine disease epidemics raging across this country, what are they going to do? Most of them are well-meaning. But they won't be able to stop it. They won't have the facilities. They'll run out of doctors and nurses. They'll run out of pills. They'll run out of the medicines. And it's going to take over. And the only ones that are going to go through it in good shape would be the people of God who trust in God and walk with God. And so we're going to have to be those people. And if we're going to be in God's kingdom, we're going to have to be those people too. We need to have that element of faith in our lives more than we've ever had before. Turn with me, if you would, back to the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, if you would, to Luke chapter 18. It should be familiar to all of us. Luke chapter 18, and it shows how Jesus spoke a parable, saying that men always ought to pray, not to lose heart. Always ought to pray. We've got to keep up prayer and cry out to God more than ever. Talks about this unjust judge who finally heard the widow because she kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. And so he said, yet because this widow troubles me, verse 5, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then Christ said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall not God avenge his only elect who cry out? Think about that expression. You're going to see that again. And frankly, some of the commentaries and my friend uh, out in Pasadena, who's a Jew, has told me that in the Hebrew, when it says cry out, it really has a strong meaning. Yell. Cry out to God. We don't have to yell, but we can put our hearts in our prayers, maybe many more than many of us do. So God's elect, who are those who cry out to him night and day, though he bear along with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he find much faith? And Jesus' rhetorical question obviously indicates they will not have much faith on the earth. We know that. God is not real to these people who have made these decisions. 
to change the whole nature of man. God made man for woman. God made woman for man. God made the family and said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Two men can't do that. Two women can't do that. And their minds, their bodies, their personality, the way they work is not the same at all. A man has to crush his own masculinity and leadership if he submits to another man using parts of his body like a woman in a perverted way. Absolutely rotten. These liberals don't like to have you describe what they do, so I'm not going to do it beyond that. But frankly, you think about it. They're perverting their bodies. It's damaging to them. Many of them get AIDS and disease epidemics because their parts of their bodies are being misused and opens them up to disease they would never have even in normal sexual relations. They're perverted in their mind, their body. It perverts their personality. It perverts their whole psyche. They are a man that ought to be a leader. They're a woman who is made to be submissive and be a help to a man. I will make a woman to be a suitable help to the man. Almighty God said back in Genesis. And that's why we're made. And God, they're trying to pervert that whole thing and the way they're coming across with this and they forget about God. They don't care about God. God is not real to them at all. So Almighty God is going to begin to get their attention, my brethren, and pretty soon we're going to see that. He's not going to sit back and let this all just continue to happen and take over our nation and do nothing about it. So we have to recognize how real God is and we have to have the fear of God. And Mr. Bueno was talking about that, and certainly I want to talk about it too. You need to think about that, the awe of God. Tremendous respect for the great creator of the heavens and the earth. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 7. God says here near the end of this whole book, He who overcomes... Are you an overcomer? I hope all of you are. What's gonna, what are you going to be like? He shall inherit all things. In other words, the whole universe. And I will be his God and he shall be my son, the overcomer. But the cowardly, what does he start out with? First of all, to condemn the sinners, people that are cowardly. They won't trust in God. They get afraid. They give in to the majority. They give it to the go-along, get-along attitude. They don't want any trouble. So they just go along with whatever it is. Back in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have gone along with the majority. Well, the majority vote for this. The majority want that. So what? If you're with the majority, frankly, brethren, you're going to up in a terrible condition. You cannot, must not go along with majority most of the time in this world. Because the majority is wrong. It's not God's way, never has been. The majority of the world isn't any kind of Christian. Most people on the earth, think about it, most of you know this, but we don't normally describe it this way. Most of the people on this earth, about 7.3 billion people, are not today and have never ever been mostly Christian. Most of them have always been in Muslims or communists or something else. They have never been mostly Christians. Most of the people on the earth have never been Christians. The majority have always been something else. Do you go along with the majority? And even those who are in so-called Christianity, Satan's counterfeit Christianity, as my booklet explains it, they don't know what real Christianity is. They have no idea what real Christianity is. Their ministers have misled them, confused them. And so they're in a false Christianity. Jesus said through the apostle John, his favorite apostle, he said, he that says I know him 
and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. Jesus Christ called people liars. They're a liar. They say they know Christ and do not keep his commandments. You're not just to know about the commandments. The devil knows about God's commandments, but you're to keep them. That keepeth not his commandments, that way of life. Christ said if you want to enter into life, Matthew 19, keep the commandments. You know that. Satan has very cleverly tried to do it with all of that. But the cowardly, unbelieving, the second thing goes right along with it. They're afraid and they're unbelieving. They don't put their faith and trust in God, so therefore they're afraid of their peers. They're afraid of the majority. They're afraid of this world. And they're letting the devil run their life. The unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. We have a lot of clever liars. Every day they come out with something in the papers. If you read the paper, or the head of some company, or the head of some major corporation, the head of some major department of the government is found to be a liar. All through our society, they lie, they lie, they live on lies. Most of them are a living lie. And we live in that. We begin to take it for granted. All liars. What are they going to happen to them? Is God going to give them a slap on the wrist? No. They shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we've got to believe God. We've got to have an awe of God. God has got to be real to us, to where we are not cowards. We do not withdraw and try to go along with majority. We will be willing to step out on faith, all alone if necessary, and do what God says in the Bible and have the genuine fear of God. God is looking for men and women and right here in this building. Will you do that? Will you learn to live by faith and put your faith and trust in God and step out alone if you have to, to obey God? So I hope all of you can get the picture. Brethren, how can you truly grow in faith? I mean grow like Jesus Christ. We're to grow Second Peter 3:18 were to grow in grace and in knowledge unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says back in Ephesians 4, putting those two together. So we're to grow in grace and in knowledge. And certainly part of grace is to have faith in God. We're to grow in that. How do you grow in faith? I think that most of you know that we're to have much more faith than we do. In the early days of this church, and especially the days of Ambassador College where the work really started to grow. I've told you this before. I'd just like to have you think about it, though, brethren. Most of you were not there. You don't know. But I can tell you sincerely, before God Almighty, there was a lot more faith. An atmosphere of faith was there in 1949 and 50 and 51, 2, 3 along. We, when we prayed for people, and when Mr. Armstrong prayed for people, hundreds of people were healed. He used to have some of us leading men who were still there with him and Raymond Cole and Raymond Manair were sent to the field and others later on, Dean Blackwell and others. Herman Hay and I were kept behind as the teachers and he had us join him on occasion and anointing the claws. And then I would talk to Mrs. Olson and the other women who were getting these responses and we estimated, it was just a rough guess, but about one-third of all the hundreds of claws that were going out, the anointed claws to heal people, about one-third got back pretty quickly, and they were healed right away. 
I don't know how many hundreds of cloths went out each year, but I'm sure there were at least 300. So let's say 100 people were healed and probably more than that every year. About one-third then rode in after several weeks or several months. It took six weeks to six months. Then God healed them. As Mr. Armstrong used to say, God does not always tell you when or how. He will do it in his way and his time if you put your trust in him. But then people would be healed and tell us. And about, well, I'm just estimating, but I talked with these ladies about it and others of us older students were involved in that discussion. About one-third were never healed or if they were healed, they never told us about it. Some said they were not healed. Why? The same anointed cloth came out from the same man, Herbert W. Armstrong, exactly with the same prayer. What's the difference? Their faith. Jesus said over and over, according to your faith, be it unto you. It was not Mr. Armstrong's faith, obviously, the same prayer over the same cloth of the same anointed oil. So one-third were not healed, or they didn't tell us about it. They lacked faith in God. And Jesus said over and over, I won't read the scriptures, you've seen it there 10 or 15 times as you read through the Gospels. According to your faith, be it unto you. Do you have faith or not? You'd better grow in faith. All of you here, you're going to need it, and all of your brethren around the world. So we had a great deal of number of healings, just time after time, and people have that expectation of faith at that time. They really did. Mr. Herbert Armstrong himself radiated faith. He didn't do that much later on and he apologized several times. He told us, he said, brethren, when we get so much involved in administration, he says, I've been doing that, traveling around the world and talking to people. He didn't have the personal emphasis on faith and personal study and prayer and fasting that he had in the earlier days. And so we had fewer miracles taking place. And so each one of us and each one of our ministers, I've told our ministers that too. We certainly want to do the administrative part, but we've got to be Christ's bond slaves. We've got to seek God with all of our being and have faith. Then the work will grow even faster because God will intervene and bless the work in a way we as can of ourselves do. But we have that atmosphere from that man who radiated faith. And certainly God was backing up his word in so many different ways at that time as that faith went out in the various aspects of God's word and healing and miracles build faith in God. They really do. People tend to have more faith. They're human. We're not spirit. We're human. And if we humans see things happening, physical things happening, even like healing, it greatly increases the people's faith and trust in God and encourages people to seek God and encourages people to grow, of course, in that way. Turn with me now to First Kings, if you would, back in your Old Testament, First Kings, chapter 17. And again, I'll try to skim over some of these verses and not read them all. But in First Kings, chapter 17, it tells the story here, beginning in 17, verse 17. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. So this woman told Elijah here about her son started to die. Her son, who was healed by God earlier, became very seriously ill, so there was no breath. And so she came to Elijah. She said in verse 18, What have I do with you, old man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance, to kill my son? She was all upset, probably said it over much. She was in an emotional state. 
So he said to her, give me your son. He took him up to his upper room, laid him on his own bed, and then he cried out, probably virtually yelled, Father, help this young child. Heal this boy. He put his being into it. He cried out to God with all of his being. And the eternal, he said, O God, have you also brought this tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself on the child three times. God must have led him to do something physically besides just the prayer. He literally stretched out his body on this little boy three times, sought God, heal him. He tried to give you his own bodily warmth to make his flesh get warm. Heal him, heal him. There he's lying on the bed crying out to God. And then the eternal heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the little boy down from the upper room where he lived to his mother. And he said, see your son lives. Brethren, notice clearly verse 24. Is healing unimportant? No, it's just a physical thing. But it reverberates out. It makes God real to people. It helps people know there is a real God. It helps people appreciate God. The woman said, now I know that you're a man of God. By this, by this healing, I know that you're a man of God. It helped her recognize who God's servant was. It pointed to the true servant of God and obviously the true message of God. I know you're a man of God. And that the word of the Lord, your gospel, your message, the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. It shows where truth is that people are being healed. It shows where God is working. That's very, very important. And God has that in his inspired word, which as we know is the mind of God. That's what this book is, the mind of God in print. Turn now to Acts chapter 4, if you would, brethren. Turn now to Acts uh, chapter uh, 8, I mean. Acts chapter 8. And I want to begin reading here in verse 14. Acts 8, verse 14, he's talking about uh, Saul going out around the uh, country and persecuting the people after uh, Stephen's death. And it said in verse 4, not 14, Acts 8, verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered after this persecution arising from Stephen's death went everywhere preaching the word. So they preached the word of God as much as they understood at that time. Then Philip, who was Philip, some great apostle? He's never called an apostle. Back in Acts 6, he was ordained a deacon. And in Acts 21, we find that he was Philip the evangelist, had four daughters. So he was an evangelist by that time. But then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Some people criticized, oh, he shouldn't do that. He should always preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. No, it doesn't say that. I'm sure his preaching included that, but he preached about Christ being the Messiah. It's not wrong to preach about Christ the Messiah. He is our Savior, our God, our coming King and Ruler. We're to preach about him. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the thing spoken by Philip. Why? Hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. That's why the multitudes listened. It showed where God was working. Very important. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice, demons were cast out. Came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy, tremendous joy and a realization that God is real. 
God is right here. Here are the true servants of the living God. That's important to realize. And one thing of healing does is to show that from those who have that power. And we in this church must have more of that power, brethren. I want all of us to have it. All of us have it. Not just to heal the sick. God normally does it through the prayers of the ministers with an atmosphere of faith. We've got to create that atmosphere. So if you prayed that God would help me live longer, if you prayed that God would bless these sermons, if you prayed that God bless this service today, pray that God will put the gifts of His Spirit in this church and that God will help every one of us to draw closer to Him and closer to Him and cry out to Him and walk with God, talk with God, commune with God, surrender to God and believe God. Believe God profoundly. So he could begin to put these gifts in his church and show where God is working more than he's done any time in many years. So God wants us to do that. I'm telling you, that's what he wants and that's what we should be doing. Turn back to Mark chapter 6 then, if you would, at this point. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to go back here to chapter 6. Get a little of this tea here. In Mark chapter 6, Christ came out from there and came to his own country. So Christ came right back near uh, where he grew up, no doubt, at Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing were astonished. They thought, well, who's this guy? Who's this guy? He's just human like us. We saw him grow up. Where did this man get these things? What wisdom is this that even by his hands are done these works? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Jesus had four physical brothers. Four by her husband, Joseph. Four brothers are named right here. And he had at least two sisters because it says sisters, plural. So Mary not only had Jesus, she went on to have five other children at least. So is this not the carpenter and their sisters are here with us and they were offended at him? Who is he? We've seen him grow up. We know he's human. But Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, notice verse 5 is a very important one. You've heard him read it before, but think about it. Meditate on it. Here was Christ, the Son of the living God, God in the flesh. He, Christ, could do no mighty work. What's going on? Christ himself could do no mighty work. Why? Except that he laid his hands on a few, very few sick folk and healed them. Why? And he marveled. He was astonished because of their unbelief. They lacked faith. They lacked faith. And you read back in Matthew's account of this, Matthew 13, 58, it was because of their unbelief, he said back there. Because of their unbelief. They did not have faith. Therefore, these miracles were not there. The atmosphere of faith was not there. And even Jesus could not do a great mighty work unless they had faith. And there was a certain degree of faith, at least, in the people themselves. They totally lacked faith. They had sarcasm. So he could not do this because of their unbelief. So that's a very important key. We've got to create an atmosphere of faith in the living church of God. We're going to have disease epidemics come on us in the next few years, such as has never happened in this nation before. We're going to have outside persecution, trials and tests. 
We're going to have a terrible drought, famine, all kinds of terrible plagues, earthquakes beyond anything we've ever witnessed, and people are going to be scared. Even people in God's church are going to be scared. What's going on? They don't understand this. And God allowed the first three plagues to come on ancient Israel. So God may allow some of those things to hit us at first. We must not give up and quit that. We will say God is allowing this. He won't allow the worst ones to come, but he's testing us. He's going to test us at first, and we want to have faith and trust in God no matter what. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, we won't worship you, but our God will deliver us. But if he does not deliver us, we will still not bow down to your idol. We know God is there, and we are going to trust God whether he delivers us right now or not. You've got to have that kind of faith. Daniel put his faith in God, and he was thrown in the lion's den, and it was too late. You know what I mean? I'm saying that rhetorically. It looked like it was too late, didn't it? What if you were picked up by men and thrown in a lion, the lion started, you thought, this is it. You would say, Father, okay, maybe you'd close your eyes and hope, God, the lions would kill you real quick before you opened your eyes again. And all of a sudden, you look out, and the lions were kind of looking puzzled and turned away and went over in the corner. He stinks, they were thinking, something like that. And God took it out of their nature. At the last minute, when it seemed too late, he delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were already in the fiery furnace. Too late. Daniel was already in the lions then. Too late. It is never too late for God. And even if God allows some of us to die, it is not too late. By the way, some of you, I know you see being helped up here with my stroke that I had seven years ago. And some of you, if you're new, will think, well, if yours are great, why God said, God, why, how come you have physical problems? As I said, most of my friends in the world who are my age are either dead or in a nursing home. <laughs> I'm not. So God will not necessarily keep me in perfect health until I'm 90 or 105. He does let old age affect some of us. So I hope you can figure that out. That doesn't mean that God has forsaken us. So he lets these trials come on us humanly. Maybe it will drive me to my knees more than ever. And if things happen to you, it will drive you to your knees. May God cause it to work that way where we cry out to God more than ever if God brings us down. God told Saul or Paul when he had this terrible affliction, he said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And sometimes he works in that way. And we can simply understand it and go on no matter what. So we want to be sure that we build an atmosphere of faith in this church, and that is very, very important. Now turn to chapter 6 of Ephesians, brethren, Ephesians, chapter 6, a scripture again we often use, but let's come at it from a certain point of view today. Ephesians chapter 6 and beginning in verse 10. He said, finally, my brethren, winding up this letter, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, not your might, but God's might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the dirty tricks of Satan the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, see various offices in the spirit world, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. There are whole armies of wicked spirits in the heavenly places, and God will permit them to try to hurt us, to strike at us, to deceive us. 
we must understand we are in a warfare. We're in a spiritual battle. So he said we've got to have the power of might of God and go forth into this battle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our fight is not with flesh and blood in this battle, but against the spirit wickedness. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Verse 13, that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore. Don't run. Don't give up and quit. Don't give up faith. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. So the way that you guard your passions where your drive for liquor and food and sex is down and around your loins, it's not evil to eat. God made us male and female. He wants us to have a sexual partner, most of us. He wants us to be married. That's not evil. But have your loins girded with truth. Use those things God's way. Don't use liquor to get drunk. Don't use sex in a wrong way. Have your loins girded with truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, your heart, your attitude is to be God's commandments, God's will. All our commandments are righteousness. Psalm 119, verse 172. And having shod your feet, the way you go, the way you live, what you're busy in, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, in this kind of battle, God mentions that even more than love. Certainly love is the most important thing in the end in every part of life. But in this kind of situation, above all, what do you take? You take the shield of faith. Satan will try to put doubts in your mind. Well, you can't be sure. And people aren't being healed yet. Mr. Meredith's just talking, blah, blah, blah. He'll put all these darts at you. And if you accept those darts and Satan gets those darts in your mind and heart and you begin to doubt, you've got to have faith, which means that you say this is the truth of God and Satan is putting doubt in my mind and I'm not going to accept that. I'm not going to let that overcome me. I'm not going to let that take me away from God. You have the shield out there to keep the dark, poison dart from coming in and doing their damage to your mind, your heart, your attitude, your faith and trust in the great God who gives you life and breath in the first place. So stand therefore and certainly take the shield of faith. God wants you to do that. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Satan is sending those out. And take the helmet of salvation. Where does God's Holy Spirit come? It doesn't come into your big toe, although it could to help you or heal you. But God's Holy Spirit comes primarily in your mind, your head. Take the helmet of salvation where your mind is and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only offensive weapon you have to fight the Satan's power, the demons, and of course the, the false ministers and false teachers, this word. Remember Christ came after Satan back in Matthew 4, describes it in detail. And he said, Satan said, cast yourself down and God will bear you up. And God said, no, Jesus said, no. God's word says you're not to tempt the word of God. He would quote the word of God that explained that misuse of another scripture. Over and over that happened. He says, bow down before me and I'll give you all the world and the glory of all these kingdoms, which Satan did have at that time. He is the God of this world. Christ knew that. But he said, God also said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You're not to serve anything else for any other reason. No matter what Satan promised you, he's a liar. He might promise that he probably wouldn't give it to you anyway. You're to trust God 
and do what God said regardless and put your faith and trust in God. The sword of the Spirit, which is this very word, the mind of God in print. Boy, I hope you can prove that to yourself. Praying always. This is, again, telling us to constantly prayer, be in an attitude of prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. Supplication means continual prayer with fasting and crying out to God. Fervent, continued prayer and humility in the Spirit. Being watchful for this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Cry out for one another. Cry out for your weak brethren who just won't trust in God. They need help. Pray for the work. Cry out to God to call us thousands more donors. We need thousands more donors, frankly. We need thousands more cohorts. We need thousands more members to get this message out. Most of our ministry does not make much money. You all know that. Our ministers have a hard time. And the only ones who have very much of of physical goods are those who had a good job before they came. And they come with us. Dr. Fall out out of Sacramento had his own dental practice and had money. Mr. Martin Fannin back in in Knoxville has a much bigger, nicer house than I do. Why? Because we pay him a big salary. No, we don't pay him a big salary. Not at all. It's because he made that as a senior sales manager with one of these great big wholesale food companies, and he built that house with his own money before he ever came with us. Many of the ministers who come with us have taken a great big salary cut in order to come with us. So our idea is not to get more money. Many of our men have capacity to make a lot more money. Our desire is to get this message to the world with all our heart and strength and mind. And each one of us needs to pray for that and ask God to send the resources so we can have an impact on this very, very sick world. Pray for me that utterance may be given, that I might open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, that the message could get out, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Again, Paul had faith. He could say, I'm giving up. God let me be in a dungeon here, and I drag around a ball and chain between my ankles, and my ankles get raw because of this iron thing around my ankles. It hurts. God must have given up on me. No, Paul never said that. He said, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Read the book of Philippians. Right in that situation in chains, in jail, Paul kept saying, rejoice. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he said, back in chapter 4, verse 13 of Philippians. So I'm an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak because he had faith and trust in God and walked and lived by faith. Therefore, Paul healed people. Peter healed people. Even Peter's shadow passing over people healed them at one point. God showed where he was working in a magnificent way and therefore people began to be converted by the thousands. There was no radio no television, nothing like that, no internet. It was because of these healings that came around and people quickly caught on. These are the true men of God. Miracles are being performed. And today we have all these fake ministers out there, some with pretty hairdos, saying God blesses you. He, whatever you do, he'll give you more and more and more, all this stuff. How are they going to know? One of the big ways God can begin to show them is not that we get on more stations, and TV or whatever else, that's good to the degree we can, but that God shows where he's working by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
And I ask all of you to join me in praying about that. Let us brethren right here in headquarters and you brethren around who hear this later, please let us in this church. I'm asking you in Jesus' name as your human leader. Nothing great about me, but God has allowed me to be here a little bit. I'm the old guy. While I'm still around, I want to exhort you. Please join me in a crusade. Join me in a crusade to study and pray and try all you can to help us revive the faith we used to have. There used to be a great atmosphere of faith. And in the early 70s, why certain things happened, the end of the work did not come in 1972, and that was very discouraging. And one of our leading ministers got into adultery, and his bad behavior got out, and people got all discouraged about that. And various other things happened, and people just began to lose faith. We had big upsets, and people left in 72, and yet God was still in charge. The truth was still being preached. People lost faith. Because things were not perfect. Have things ever been perfect in the work of God? No. But the truth was still being preached. And brethren, as I've told you, and I mean this before God in heaven, we have a more dedicated, more clean, pure ministry as a whole than I have ever known in the 65 and a half years I've been in the church, except for the earliest days when it was just Mr. and Mrs. Herbert Armstrong, and they were the father figure and the mother figure. But after that, we began to have various young men with certain attitudes and so on. So we're grateful for that. Most of our men here are very clean and very pure. Many have given up bigger jobs with more money to be in this ministry. And they're working. Many of them have, as Mr. Jacques Secure up there, probably has five or six churches to take care of. Five or six. They have to keep going, going, going and get the work done. Let's appreciate what Christ is doing, but pray that God will provide more donors, more co-workers, and more members and more ministers. We need more ministers to get out there and to teach the flock. But we need faith that God will take care of all of this. And I certainly hope that all of you will try to cry out to God in that way. Now I want to turn, if you would, to Second Timothy with me. Second Timothy. And we're going to go to chapter 1. Here the Apostle Paul describes his young evangelist, his son, he called him his son in the Lord, Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did without ceasing. I remember you in my prayers night and day. Without ceasing, I keep praying for you, keep praying for you night and day. Do we do that? Most of us don't have that contact with God. Greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance. Notice this, brethren. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith. Timothy came from a place where his own grandmother and mother had a great deal of faith. As I've shown you, I love my parents. They were good Methodists. They were sincere, good, clean, good people. But it was my Methodist grandmother who had radiated faith. And she constantly read the Bible. And she got me interested in reading the Bible when I was way back 12, 14 years old. Much more than my own parents or my Sunday school teacher or anyone else. Somehow she just read the Bible to me quietly. I can remember the winter time by the old, uh, what do they call it, the stuff. I can't remember the name of the stove. But anyway, we'd sit by the stove and she'd read the Bible to me. And the Bible became more real because of her standing there reading it to me as a boy. 
And then all of a sudden during that time I began to hear this voice over the radio. My uncle, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, God made us then. So this man from Eugene, Oregon was preaching. And he talked about the world tomorrow. He made more sense than anyone else. Herbert W. Armstrong and the good news of tomorrow's world, or the good news of the world tomorrow, I should say, as he said it back there. And he made sense of the Bible in a way no one else ever had. And so I finally had to come to Ambassador College. I couldn't live with myself. I had to come to find the truth. I thought I'd come out and find it. After a year, I'd come back to the University of Missouri and resume studying business administration. That was my major, at least, at junior college. But once I got there, I found it wasn't just a place to go for a year. It was a whole way of life. And I saw this man radiating faith. And I saw people being healed all over that campus. I saw miracles being performed. And finally, when I got to be student body president, I led the students in fasting. We'd have no money. And we were very small. And the mailing list was very small for coker letters. But no money was there. The college would have to be closed, Mr. Armstrong said, unless we got more money. I would try to encourage the students as a whole. And we had two or three or five other brethren living there. Annie Mann, the house mother, Bill Homburger, the caretaker, and other dedicated people would hear about it. And they'd tell others. So eventually we had eight or 12 people fasting with us, crying out to God. Did we send out another powerful letter? Did Mr. Armstrong make some special phone calls? No. Only the prayers of these young people. And suddenly the money started coming in. That helped me to have faith. That helped me to have faith. In that first year of college, I came out carnal, 100% carnal. Had all kinds of bad attitudes and approaches and smart aleck attitudes and so on. But Mr. Armstrong gave a sermon after I'd been there just a month or two about faith and healing. And so I thought, well, I better be healed. I had these warts on, I think there were many on this end, but they were on both hands. I don't know if Catherine remember which hand they were on. Uh, they were there on the mainly the back of my fingers. Great big warts. And my mother, as she may remember, was worried. She said, Roderick, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to get poisoning or you'll get cancer. Because I did everything I, I could to kill those warts. I would take a razor blade, and I had sense enough to put it through a, a, lamp, uh, a match to kill, uh, sterilize it. But then I cut the wart tear down to the, it was bleeding. I'd take a hot match stick, and later, if that didn't work, and jam it down right to the root of the wart, try to burn it out. I did all kinds of crazy stuff as a teenage boy. I was trying to be tough. I had the healthiest warts west of the Mississippi. I really did. They were very healthy wards. They always came back. So Mr. Armstrong was preaching on healing, and so I decided I'd at least give it a try. And I think God was trying to encourage me, even though I didn't have much faith. I, I, it sounded real to me. I was moved by his sermon, and I asked him to pray for me. I should have asked him to pray for my eyes because my nearsightedness got worse, and that was more serious perhaps. But I asked him to pray for my warts. And did God heal the warts right away? No. A week went by, and frankly, I was living on the third floor of Mayfair, the student dormitory. The, many of you were there and know what I mean. And my feet would hit the floor every morning, and I'd take my hands and look real quick while I was still sitting there in my jammies and see if the warts were still there. Yes, they were still there. They weren't getting smaller. They just sort of stayed the same. Finally, after two or three months, God tested me. 
After two or three months, I, my feet hit the floor. I put my hands out, and the sun was coming in from the window. No warts. Thought, wow, the warts are gone. Where are they? And I mean this. Before God, I pulled the sheets back. I thought maybe they fell off in the bed. Then I looked under the bed. There were no warts around. I don't know what God did. He vaporized the warts with atomic power or something. He just took them away. Or my body just all of a sudden absorbed them. It didn't take a long time. It was over one night. And God took those warts away. And that greatly strengthened my faith as a young man. And perhaps God was beginning to call me even then to be in his service. I didn't know that. When Mr. Armstrong later asked me to give a sermonette two years later when I was student body president, I said, I don't want to be a preacher. I told him. He reminded me of that. I told Mr. Armstrong, I said, that's one thing I don't want to be as a minister. But he said, well, you're the student body president. And Mr. Armstrong had a way of explaining things to kind of twist your arm. And he said, well, you're the student body president, and this is not just the Sabbath service. He said, this is the college chapel service. Oh, he had never said it that way before. And you're the student body president. I'd like you to just give a good talk for the students about right living or something. So I still have those notes. I think it was very simple sermonette sermon I gave about uh, sermonette about Christ, I, well, things I was learning in freshman Bible. Real Christianity is imitating Christ. I never learned that in the Sunday school class in a direct way. They didn't understand that you literally do what Christ did in keeping God's law and keeping the Sabbath and everything else. So I gave that simple sermonette. Then Mr. Armstrong told me years later, after I'd been ordained, he said, everyone in the room knew that you were called to be a minister. And I said, no, Mr. Armstrong, one person didn't. I didn't know that. I really didn't at all. I thought that you have to be like Dr. Ridpath, my Methodist minister, and have kind of short, stubby hands and be very nice. And he'd pat my hand. I'd been a Golden Gloves champion. And he'd say, oh, Roderick, it's good to see you. Really a nicey, nice guy. He meant well. I liked his son, Clark Ridpath, who was in my class. But he was a typical, nicey, nice Protestant minister who never raised his voice or got upset or stirred up, never preached about prophecy, never preached about keeping God's commandments, and so on. I thought you have to be a very nice, sweet guy. No, I'm not a nice, sweet guy. I thought I don't need to be a minister. But God wanted a fire-breathing evangelist, I guess. So he called me, and when those words were healed, that encouraged my faith. And then later on, sent me on a baptizing tour and when I went on that tour, I wasn't really ready, but by the end of the tour I was ready. I saw people's lives being changed from one end of the United States up to the other and up into Canada. And I just saw people who were older than I was, old enough to be my father or grandfather. And they'd sometimes break down and cry when we left them, knowing they would never again see anyone from Ambassador College again. And sometimes they didn't either. No churches east of the Mississippi in those days. Only Portland, Eugene, and Pasadena. Those are the only churches on the earth. So God gave us back encouragement with miracles. And I saw others being healed. And finally I was healed of warts and various other things began to happen all through the student body, all through headquarters, over and over again. And that helped me to realize that God is real. So Timothy grew up in an atmosphere of faith. And he got this faith partly from his grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And I am persuaded is in you also. That faith is in you, Paul said. Therefore, I remind you, Timothy, to stir up. And as some of you know, the word stir up in the Greek here can be translated, uh, kindle into flame. 
It's the same time expression the commentaries tell us can be used to, to stir up a fire, to kindle into flame, a fire-burning type of faith, kindle into flame, the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul laid hands on Timothy. Mr. Herbert Armstrong laid hands on me, personally baptized me, personally laid hands on me, personally performed my wedding. But through the laying on of my hands, for God has not given us, notice, a spirit of fear, nor not to be cowardly, as I read you in Revelation. That's wrong. We're to have faith in God. We're not to be cowards. But he's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, a spirit of power. We can do it through Christ in us. I can do all things through Christ who is in me, as it says there. Where it's the spirit of power, the spirit of love, the outflow of concern and kindness and spirit of service we should have, and the worship and the adoration we should have toward God, and the spirit of a sound mind, not a spirit of Pentecostalism where we're hooping and hollering and, Lord, come down, Lord, come down, and hollering at God and storing up some fake type of thing, but genuine faith in God and the willingness to do what God says and let Christ live in us the same kind of life he did live, the spirit of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or me, his prisoner. They could have looked at Paul and said, well, God's not using you. You're a, you're a jailbird, Paul. Now, Paul was a jailbird. He was in prison about five years, about five years at the end of his life. Two years at Caesarea, remember, toward the book of Acts, read it. Then he was on a prison ship and in prison during that long trip to Rome, and then he was in Rome at least two years in his own hired house. Then he came back to Rome later where I wrote the second letter to Timothy. So he was there at least several months then. So it was about five years of the last ten years of Paul's life. He was in prison and he still had faith and trust in God. Nor of me his prisoner but share with me in the suffering uh, for the gospel according to the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling. We're to be like God. We're to be full sons of God. If we look up in the sky and see the sun, the moon, the stars, that great God who made that is making us his full sons. He wants us to have absolute faith in him, trust in him. If he puts us later on Alpha Centauri or out in Pluto or some other star out in the way off somewhere, he can trust us. We've always been willing to know that he is right. You don't just trust him by believing he's there. You don't just trust him by trusting for healing. You're willing to know that he is there, he is right. You trust that he knows best. But in this case, Father does know best because he's God, our Father. And you will do what he says because you have gone through a lifetime of prayer, of study, of meditation, of fasting, of overcoming, to put your faith and trust in God so he knows you will act a certain way. Through faith, you will know that he is right. His way is right. And you will live by faith. By faith in every phase and facet of your life, you will live that way. And God is testing you and me on all of that. Brethren, I want to give you seven keys here to building faith. Not just to tell you about faith, but here are seven keys. I've thought and prayed about it. I've given some before, but I'm giving more than ever today. I've thought and prayed about it more. How important it is now. I realize we do not have the faith we should. And some of your brethren have told me that right here at headquarters and in the church as a whole. Many ministers have said that they sense a lack of faith 
people don't really trust in God to be sure they give up a job on the Sabbath, that they would trust God for healing, that they would cause trust God for deliverance and all kinds of sin. They, that absolute sense of faith is not there anymore, or very little of it. Here are seven ways that you could grow in faith, and I hope that you'll write this down. Take notes if you would. Number one, prove to yourself. Take time, brother, to think and pray and meditate and read about it. Prove to yourself that God is real, that a real God exists, and that the Bible is his inspired work. Prove that. Then when you read the Bible, you can read it as the mind of God. Prove that to where you really deeply believe there is a personal God sitting at the controls of the universe, and this book, the Bible, is really his inspired instruction. Prove that so you can base your whole life on that. That's the basis of your faith. Prove that basic thing. Secondly, really study. Don't just carelessly read. Many of us just read the Bible through and we don't study and stop and meditate and think about it. Study his word and feed on Christ, as you've heard me mention back in John chapter 6, verse 57. Feed on Christ. This is, Bible is the revelation of Christ. It's Christ's mind in print. He is the word. This is the written word. Feed on it. Study it carefully. Digest it. Make it part of you in the way you think, the way you act, the way you are. Thirdly, carefully meditate. After you've read the Bible, go back and read some of the key points again and meditate. Am I doing this? What more thoroughly should I understand? What lessons should I learn from this or the things that I haven't been doing that I should do? Deeply meditate on the Bible and all related issues of what you're learning. Fourthly, constantly pray and seek God. Constantly pray, and I would say pray fervently, brethren, because you know that's the example I use here of these people that God answers. They prayed fervently. Elijah cried out to God. And we find back in Hebrews there, in Hebrews 5, I think it is, that Jesus was heard because he cried out to God and he, he shed a great, he was so fervent that great drops of blood came out of him as he prayed to God. He was absolutely in a passion. Father, help me, help me. I'm the only one. If I don't make it, there isn't any Savior. And he was so passionate in praying to God that he must have had physical sweat pouring off of him, but sometimes the blood vessels burst and got into the, in the tear ducts, the, the sweat ducts, the commentary said it could happen that way, and sometimes blood was mingled with his sweat. Blood was mingled with his perspiration. He was so fervent as he prayed to God. Do you pray that way? You've heard me say this, but I mean it. Mr. Armstrong said it a number of times, at least five or ten times I've heard him say it. He didn't go around saying it every day. He didn't constantly repeat himself, but in the 36 and a half years I knew Mr. Armstrong, I knew him quite well, frankly, Spent thousands of hours with him personally. Slept in the same hotel room or same hotel suite. Ate with him hundreds and hundreds of meals. Shared so much with him. I was the one who went with him to see his brother, his son Dick, after Dick's death. And we raised, prayed that God would raise him from the dead. I was there as the one he asked to perform his own mother's funeral. I knew him very, very well. That has made me any better. I had that opportunity. But I knew that man well. And he certainly prayed fervently. And he said that one thing he thought was lacking in the prayers of God's people, he said a number of times, he says, "My, our brethren do not put their hearts in their prayers. 
he often would quote the, the Moffat version, I think it's Hosea 7, 14, where people do not put their hearts in their prayers. And they talk about modern Israel. Moffat translated hearts. If people don't put their hearts in their prayers, if you just have a sleepy time prayer, a routine prayer, learn to mean it. Mean it. Don't just sort of say, if you have to, brethren, as I had to do this in the early years of my conversion, I did this many times. It doesn't make me any better. I just learned I had to do it. It didn't come naturally. I said, Father, help me to pray. Please help me to know that you're there. Please help me to put my heart in my prayer. Then God would do that. You ask God for that. He will help you in any phase of the Christian life. He will give you more faith and courage than you've ever had. So pray fervently to God and meditate on your prayer. And then, of course, the fifth point that you need to do, I think think I've already mentioned constantly pray and seek God is number four. And then the fifth point Surround yourself with people of faith. Try to be in an atmosphere of faith. That will help your faith. Then when you get really strong or you become a minister or elder or leader, maybe you can be in all the other atmospheres and help those people. But at first, you need to be in an atmosphere of faith. Choose your friends carefully, it says in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 13, verse 20. Proverbs 13, verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise. He who walks with men of faith will tend to have more faith. If you associate with people who are fringers, well, I'm not so sure about Mr. Armstrong, they'll say, or Mr. Meredith. I'm not so sure about this church. Nobody's perfect. That is correct. Nobody's perfect. Nobody has ever been perfect except Jesus Christ. So we're not asking you to believe in us. I'm asking you to believe in the God of the Bible. I'm asking you to believe in the Jesus Christ of the Bible and put your faith and trust in them and in their inspired word to where you mean it because you know he is there. You know he is real. You know his way is right. So you put your trust in that very real God. Surround yourself with faithful people. Try to be in an atmosphere of faith. And then number six, the sixth key to build faith Try to get in the very center of God's church and God's work. Try to be involved in the church. Don't be on the fringe. We have fringers. We've talked about that way back in the days of Worldwide. I'd watch people and I would tell my wife Margie, and I didn't tell others back then, but I'd sometimes mention names to her. Well, I think so-and-so is probably going to not be with us in another few months. And I was right. About 95% of the time, I'd see their their trajectory. They're already hanging around with fringers. They're weak. Sometimes they'd go to them and try to help them, depending on their attitude and if they'd be willing to listen. But people who hang around fringers, people are always questioning. People are always doubting. People are always making sarcastic comments. They not only hurt themselves, they hurt the faith of others. They hurt the faith of others. That if you hang around those people, they will pull you down and they will pull you right out unless you yourself are very strong. So you need to understand that. Try to be in the center of God's work, of God's church, and be in the center of God's work, His church and His work. Be involved. Help the church all you can. Remember, you're a bond slave of Christ. You belong to God. All your time, your talents, everything you have belongs to God. You're His. You belong to Him. Christ is your life. In Him you live and move and have your being. So if you're involved in doing his work, 
that gives you a direct role in Christ, what Christ is doing, then you can sense and feel, in a sense, him working through you and building his work through you, and that will increase your faith as you walk with God by being right in the center of God's church and God's work, not out on a fringe in that way at all. Then the seventh key, the seventh key to grow in faith is exercise faith. I know I used to get in physical culture a lot way back in years of Bernard McFadden and some of the early physical cultures and read their book. And I had the Charles Atlas course and Charles Atlas had dynamic tension. Some of you older folks remember the ads, don't you, where it showed this skinny guy on the beach and this big guy came along and kicked sand and and then the girlfriend went off with the big guy and this poor guy is sitting there. So he got Charles Atlas course and he practiced dynamic tension. And you, if you have this resistance, you pull your arm up and that, that's a resistance exercise. That can help. But dynamic tension, they get it so you really understand it. Very important. Dy- dynamic tension is vibrating. So you kind of vibrate. That makes a dynamic tension. Of course, I did a lot of those things. It didn't seem to help too much. I was still skinny. I did get stronger, but it never made me big like a man with a big frame. But I tried all these things as a boy, trying to improve myself. But I did improve to a extent, at least, that I was a fairly good in, in boxing and, and in football and basketball and especially in track and ran one of the fastest miles in the state of Missouri two or three years because I did exercise. Exercise faith. Try to think, if God says this, I'm going to do it. Think about it, specifically meditate about it. I'm going to exercise faith in this part of my life. I'm going to exercise faith in the way I choose a mate. I'll ask God's guidance. I'll ask God's wisdom. I'm going to exercise faith in the way I try to choose my profession. I'll try to see what God's talents have given are that he gave me and see what God wants and exercise faith that God will guide it. If I pray about it, pray about it, pray about it. Say, God, guide me, lead me. In every part of your life, put faith and trust in God. Put faith and trust in God and glorifying God in your body and glorifying God in your marriage. If you're a woman, try to submit to your husband. God says a woman is submit to your husband. You say, well, my husband is not perfect. Well, I'm sorry, girls. I don't know any perfect husbands. <laughs> sorry, men. None of you are perfect. And I'm not perfect. There's never been a perfect. And a husband is to love his wife. Some men say, how can I love my wife? She's always picking at me and picking at me and doing all this stuff, talking too much, whatever it is. No, you love her anyway. She's your mate. She's part of you. By faith, do what God says and ask God to help you do it, and he will help you do it. Walk and live by faith in every aspect of your life. Exercise faith, and your faith will grow and grow as you do that. So remember, that's a very, very important thing. All seven points. First, I'll go over them again. Prove to yourself that there is a real God, number one, and that his word is inspired, that the Bible is is his inspired word. Number two, really study his word. Not just care to feed on this book, the Bible. Study it constantly. And brethren, the more you study the Bible, the more faith you will have. You really will if you read it regularly and continually. Thirdly, carefully meditate on the Bible and related issues of the lessons you need to be learning, the mistakes you made and why you made them and how to do better. Meditate. Fourthly, fourth key, constantly pray with zeal and seek God. Pray fervently and seek God with zeal. 
And fifthly, surround yourself with faithful people. Be in an atmosphere of faith and grow in faith. Number six, get in the very center of God's church and the center of his work where you are a productive Christian. You're helping others. You're helping others. You're bringing forth fruit and you can feel God's spirit going through you and in the situation as you do that. And you'll then build faith in that way. Number six. Number seven, just like you would exercise a muscle, and most of these bodybuilders, by the way, I found out when they really had a good body, they were usually end up as Charles Atlas. They it later came out he was using weights. He was using barbells and dumbbells to build his body. So, but exercise. Obviously, you don't want to just do that kind of exercise. Run and build your cardiovascular system too. But exercise faith. Use it. Use it. Use it. And then you will have greater faith. Exercise faith in every portion of your life and walk and live by faith. And I'll tell you, if we in this church do this, brethren, around the world, we will begin to have more miracles. We will begin to have more blessings. We will begin to have more divine healings that are marvelous and magnificent. More outsiders will hear about it. And they will begin to turn to God because they will hear that there is genuine faith and genuine miracles and genuine healings in that church over there. I don't understand all their doctrine, they may say, but they're having healings. They're having miracles. That will be a sign of where God is working, like these same things I've read you in his inspired word. So exercise faith and walk and live by faith in every way you can. And I hope all of you will do that. Now, brethren, turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And most of you know this is the uh, called the faith chapter in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Paul writes under God's inspiration, and definitely the apostle Paul wrote this book, by the way. I'm going to write a whole article on that. There's no question. He wrote this book. Now, faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's the evidence of something you do not see. Let me give you a definition of faith Mr. Armstrong had in an old article here. Do you want to hear it? We ought to print it in our own article sometime. I'd like to write an article on this and have this as part of it. He says, one man, and I'm sure he met George Mueller, this famous man who had this whole system of homes for uh, orphans over in England, over near Bristol, England. A very tremendous faith how he built those orphanages just by praying to God. One man expressed it very well. Quote, faith is the assurance that the things which God said in his word are true. You've got to come to believe when you read something in this book where it's a direct promise, a promise, you'd better say, God, you have promised. I claim your promise. I claim your promise. You cannot lie. You said you were healed if we trust you. I do ask you to heal. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do what you said. I'm going to trust you until the end. And mean it. Whatever it is, you put your faith and trust in God. So faith is the assurance that the things God said in his word are true and that God will act according to what he has said in his word. This assurance, this reliance on God's word, this confidence is faith. End of quotation. That basic, fervent, constant, deep, profound confidence in God's word is faith. Some people say, I just can't work up faith. I just, you know, you try, I'll give me faith and try to get all emotional. No, faith is not some emotion. 
Faith is not something you suddenly get in a Pentecostal meeting. Faith is not some quick idea you have. Faith is building within yourself an absolute assurance that God is real, that this word is inspired of God. It's his word. He stands before behind it. He's got to do it. He will do it. He will always do it. And in my life for 65 and a half years, my brethren, I have seen that true. You say, well, he let some people die. Yes, most of them, except a very few, were up in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Most people do die sometime between 60 and 90. You know that. God let some of our people do that. Some die and you don't know why they died earlier, but later it comes out you can often see a reason why, not that they did something bad. My wife Margie died about 39 years ago at age 40. Why? Later on we will understand the details. We will understand the details of things, and God will show us. But I've seen how God delivered me. He delivered the work. He delivered the church. Over and over and over again, he would work things out for good. And God promises that. And I have seen that, and I believe that with every fiber of my being. All things in the end work out together for good. If you love God, faith, have that confidence in God. And I'm not saying I have all of it, I don't. I need to have more. You need to have more. Let's pray for each other. Pray fervently for this increased faith in the church of God. But he said, this assurance, this reliance on God's word, this confidence is faith. So we want to build that into our very lives as part of our very being. Anyway, faith is the evidence or substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which were seen were not made of the things that are visible. God created the earth by his power, not by anything you could see. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God and so that things were made of things not visible. By faith Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. He trusted that when God said sacrifice an animal, that was the thing to do. By faith Enoch was translated so he did not see death. God simply took Enoch out of a terrible situation. But verse 6, but without faith, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. Brethren, you can't please God. I can't please God if we don't have faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So I ask in Jesus' name, pray to God that God will put more absolute faith in this church where we trust in God. We rely on God. We rely on his promises. We take these seven steps to grow in faith. Grow in faith. And let's build an atmosphere of faith in this church beyond what we've ever had. Not just what we had back in the early 50s, but more than that. That was not perfect. More than that. And as we do that, we're going to see God respond. And God will bless. And God will empower us more in our lives and in this work. So let's grow in faith with passion, with every fiber of our being. And don't give up and quit. Endure to the end and grow in faith.